So, brothers and sisters, this evening, as we continue in the uh, Gospel of Mark, let's start with a teaching found in the book of Hebrews in order to help us understand the significance of the life of our Lord. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Especially the first part of this verse and this teaching will serve uh, uh, to help us understand then this next portion of the Gospel of Mark. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And so here is the value and the blessing of reading the Gospels. I hope you enjoy reading the Gospels, including, of course, the Gospel of Mark that we get to see Christ partaking in the same things that we experience in our lives. There is a great mystery at the very beginning of our Bibles uh, and the history of redemption when it says in Genesis 3, verse 8, that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It becomes clear by this uh, statement and this report, uh, and it becomes all the more clear that man was created by God. Think about this with me. Man was created by God to enjoy fellowship with God. It's almost a a kind of passing reference. We might read it and forget it. That God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Granted, it's what we call an anthropomorphism. Uh, It's the matter of referring to God and his activities in human terms. After all, how does God come walking when he is a spirit and has no legs to walk with? Why would God, who enjoys perfect fellowship within himself, need to come visit Adam and Eve in the garden? And yet, this is what we are told, that the Lord God came walking in the, cool, uh, in the garden in the cool of the day. So, so that what we learn is that God is finally a personal God. He is a personal God. It would be wrong, it would be very wrong, For us to think that we are personal beings and therefore God just reveals himself to us as a personal being. Instead, our personality, if you will, is is part of the image of God. We are personal beings. We relate to each other as persons exactly because God is personal. And we have been created in his image, in this case, in his image as a personal being. But before we relate to each other 
as personal beings, we must see that we were created to relate to God personally. And so given that we, we know the whole story, does it not prefigure for us? Does it not foreshadow for us? When we hear that God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, does it not prefigure for us the coming of Christ as God when we hear that He came walking in the cool of the day? There are, of course, several, several gardens in Scripture, starting with the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was that place planted by God Himself, uh, the order of which was set up by God Himself, where God put the man and his wife that they might work it and keep the order that God had established there. And then, of course, there is the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where God put His Son to struggle with the path and suffering set before Him. And the two gardens are certainly related It's because of our sin in the Garden of Eden that Christ came to the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, long before Jesus our Lord reached the Garden of Gethsemane, He came walking in the land of Galilee. That's what we're getting at here. We begin in this way to emphasize what Mark makes clear that Jesus as God, remember how much John or uh, Mark has already emphasized for us the, the fact that Jesus is God. But here we have Jesus as God walking the common paths of this world. The first point this evening is the significance of Galilee. We have already heard in verse 9 that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Remember that here is where John puts the greater emphasis on the humanity of of Christ. The Hebrew Scriptures make clear that uh, that the Christ would come and He would come as God walking among His people. The designation Son of God in the first verse of Mark's Gospel, makes clear the divinity of Christ, that He came as God in our own flesh. But that too needs to be emphasized, in our own flesh, which Mark does so now by recording that He came from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. So the Gospel writer Mark was not wasting words when he first says that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. But then also says in verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. On one hand, the reference simply explains that having been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist in the land of Judea, Then he came back into Galilee, his own land. But what we need to see is that this was a deadly move. This is a monumental failure. 
we might say, on Jesus' part, to leave Judea, where he was baptized, and to begin his ministry in Galilee. I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I am being facetious, <laughs> of course, because the significance of Galilee is the same as the significance of Bethlehem. Uh, Mark doesn't write of the details of Jesus' birth, but the significance is the same, that even as Jesus was born in the largely unknown, insignificant town of Bethlehem, so he began his ministry in the largely insignificant region of Galilee. It may not be immediately apparent, but it doesn't take much time in God's Word to come to realize the significance of Galilee. Galilee was the region to the north of Judea, which uh, Judea claiming the capital city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the royal city. Uh, Jerusalem was the city of David. Uh, Jerusalem was the city where the temple of God was located. So the question then becomes quite obvious. Why would Jesus center his ministry in Galilee? And we ought to take note that it wasn't just at the beginning Jesus didn't just start out in the minor leagues and then advance to the major league. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, in particular, uh, makes it clear that while Jesus did go to Jerusalem in obedience to God's law to recognize and celebrate the three feasts each year, yet he was a Galilean. And he spent most of his ministry perhaps even some 90% of his ministry in Galilee. Well, if you want to be an influential politician, then you have to go to Indianapolis, or you have to go to Washington, D.C. If you want to be an actor or an actress, uh, you have to go to New York to maybe appear on the stages of, uh, of Broadway, or you have to go to Hollywood um, with, uh, with plans to get into the movies. But our Lord was not interested in being a politician or a movie star. He had come to do His Father's will, and His Father's will was that He would become one of us. This is what you should be hearing as Jesus came into Galilee, and, and, and it should ring with joy upon your ears. It, it should make it clear to you that Jesus does not stand above you, oppressing you, but that He is your brother. Jesus is your brother, and yet He is also your Savior. Again, Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus was the Galilean, and he was so without apology. He was a Galilean so that you would know that he knows you. It would be a mistake, of course, to think that the divine second person of the Godhead, took on human flesh so that he might know what it's like to be a human. 
huh, I created these, these creatures called human beings, but I wonder what it's like to be one of them. That's, that's really a, a blasphemous thought. And yet it's a very common mistake among Christians. It, 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 it relates to the idea of God testing His people. God never tests us so that He can learn something. As the omniscient God who knows all things, He does not need to test us so that He might learn something. Rather, God tests us in order that we might learn who He is and who we are as sinners. In the same way, God did not need the experience of being, of becoming man. Rather, the point is our conviction, our comfort, that Jesus knows our experience. He became a nobody. Because you're a nobody. Because all of us, really, are nobodies. There's nothing wrong with being famous. Unless being famous, of course, makes us proud and unbelieving. But neither is there anything wrong with not being famous, with not being from the big city or the influential places of the world. Jesus was from Galilee. And that should give us enormous comfort and should allow us to relate to our Lord even as one of us. I would ask, have you ever stopped to think about it? What did it mean for Adam and Eve to have fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden? What did it mean for God to come walking in the garden in the cool of the day? The experience is impossible to imagine. Certainly beyond our our full understanding. And, And in the same way, what does it mean to relate to a God who is spirit? God is here right now. He is spirit. But how do we connect? How do we know Him. God is Spirit. He is here and He is there. uh, And He is everywhere at the same time. So how can you find Him? How can you know Him? The comfort of the Gospel is that God became one of us. How many years have you celebrated Christmas, the birth of Christ, without coming to terms with what... with what happened as Jesus was born. The incarnation of Christ is the matter of God becoming flesh and becoming flesh to dwell with us and to draw near to us in order that we might find fellowship with Him even in the flesh. Maybe that sounds almost sacrilegious, even blasphemous, But it's the truth of God's word that Christ, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. On one hand, the incarnation of Christ is is a great mystery. Even in heaven, even arriving in heaven, we, we may not be able to understand 
the height and the depth of the incarnation. But, but as we hear it and, and understand the coming of Christ, to the extent and degree that we can, the, the, marvelous, the marvelous blessing for us is that the God who is spirit, who is infinite and eternal, who is everywhere present anyhow, yet has drawn near to us, so very near. Whatever the experience was of Adam and Eve walking with God in the Garden of Eden, we have a God. We have a Savior God who is even one of us. And next we hear the, then the call of Christ. Both Mark and Matthew uh, put a great emphasis on the account of Jesus calling his disciples. Uh, Mark 1 verse 16 records passing along the Sea of Galilee. There's Galilee again. Uh, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Once again, we have a reference to Galilee. And, uh, and once again, we must take note that this, is, uh, this was not helpful. This was not what Jesus should have done on a political level. If Mark had wanted to impress people, if he was writing a story that might appeal to the masses, then he would have put Jesus in Judea, even in Jerusalem, because that's where all the action was. That's where all the influence was. But here is Jesus in Galilee. And furthermore, here is Jesus calling simple fishermen to be His disciples. Here is a point of decision for you and me, because the same call of Christ is issued in our own day. To tie things in with the, with the last point, we, we must understand that the call of Christ is the call of God Himself to believe in Him. It is true that Jesus never said, I am God. He never put those three words together, certainly obviously not in English, but neither in the language that, that He spoke. But He made claims about Himself that are equal to the words, I am am God. Even more, Jesus taught the very words of God and He did miracles to give backing and proof to the claims that He made and the teaching that He taught. But the thing that is often missed in the discussion and and debate about the divinity of Christ is the relationship that He took up with His disciples to start with, Jesus did not, did not hand out flyers inviting people to follow him. Instead, he appeared before them and said, follow me. He gave a command that, as Mark reports, was immediately obeyed. Verse 18 records, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. For the sake of full, full disclosure, it's only fair to note that this was not, as we can tell, the first 
time that the brothers Peter and Andrew and the brothers James and John, this was not the first time they had met with Jesus. The other gospel writers make it clear that Jesus had a number of encounters with these men before issuing his call for them to follow him. But nothing makes it any less striking and significant that Jesus said, follow me, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. The point in application certainly um, is not that you should go to work tomorrow on Monday and quit your job. Please don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't go to work and say, I heard a pastor yesterday who told me I should quit my job in order to be a disciple of Christ. That's not the point. But let us not miss the significance of four men leaving behind their means of support and, uh, and, 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 and living in, in dependence upon Christ. For the next three years... Jesus would provide for them, both physically and spiritually. There would be days in which they would be so hungry that they would have to pick grain by hand from the fields even as they passed along the road. You probably, you maybe remember that story. And the application is really the same for us. Not not that we should quit our jobs unless we're called to full-time ministry, but, but that we should learn to follow Christ independence upon him it's true for us as well that he calls us to be his disciples and as we answer the call in faith we can be sure of this that he will provide for us here is the exact message of jesus in in matthew 6 in the sermon on the mount when jesus said do not be anxious do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Don't you, don't you like it when somebody says to you, oh, you know, don't worry. But it's even better, is it not, when somebody says to you, don't worry, because I'm going to take care of it. And better still is when somebody says, don't worry, don't be anxious, because I'm going to take care of it. And when you know that they can Take care of it. Jesus was not saying quit your job and sit around expecting manna to fall from heaven. Clearly no, but but consider the significance of what he was saying, that it's not finally your toil and your sweat and your work that keeps you alive. Have you figured this out yet? Blessed is the person and how sweet the rest of the man or woman who gets a hold of this truth, that you do not, you cannot keep yourself alive by your own work. Maybe that feeds your pride to think that you're the one who's keeping yourself alive by way of your own work. Perhaps the only way to know this for sure is to experience it. Maybe maybe it has happened to you that... Uh, that uh, you found yourself unemployed and you went uh, some measure of time without a job and without income, but you didn't die, did you? You're still here. And the point of the call of Christ is to follow Him, not quitting your job, 
but realizing that the one whom you are following is God himself and that he can provide for your needs, whether by your work or without your work. He can, he will provide for your needs as you answer his call to follow him. And so finally, the authority of Jesus. Again, you know, follow me, but who is Jesus and should we follow him? Well, surely we must follow him if we know who he is and if we know his authority. Let's, let's make, the, let's make the, the connection that Mark is giving us that as Jesus called his disciples and as they immediately obeyed and followed him, that Jesus displayed to them and to us his authority over all things. Mark 1, uh, 21-28 records the story of Jesus casting out a demon. He even commanded the demon not to speak. And the people's reaction must be our reaction that, that, that they saw that here was a man, no doubt a man, and yet a man with authority. A man with the same authority of God Himself in order to cast out this demon. Of course, to understand and appreciate this part of the story, you have to, you have to understand and believe that there is such a thing as Satan and demons. And here's the key to recognizing the importance, the importance of the gospel message that, that Mark is telling. Mark's original readers had, had no problem believing that there is Satan and his demons. They saw it in their culture. They saw it in their own lives and in their own flesh. In our day, we have cleaned things up, have we not? We, we have sanitized the Christian faith so that it's just the matter of getting some help from God in order to live a better life, in order to have a, a more blessed and pleasurable life. But the teaching of God's Word is that Satan is real, that his forces are real, and we are under his sway. We are under his ownership. Unless there be one who has the power and the authority to cast out Satan and deliver and to deliver us from his rule. This is what Jesus went on to demonstrate. He came into Galilee. And so we see his humanity. We see that he is one of us. He called his disciples and they immediately answered that call and began to follow Him. And so we see His power and His authority. And yet, that we might see His authority all the more, we see in the very next story, Jesus casting out a demon. So brothers and sisters, and all of you who are here this evening, understand who Jesus is, and understand who He must be and understand that He is the Savior that God has provided 
for sinners like you and me. The point is not that we just roll up our sleeves and try to do better. The point is that we need a Savior outside of ourselves and yet who is one of us in order to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. And that's humiliating. I mean, to be told you can't save yourself and you can't contribute to your salvation, it is admittedly humiliating. And yet, in humility, is great joy and a sure hope and the promise that Christ can do for us what must be done for our salvation and that He has done it. We're going to continue through the Gospel of Mark in the coming weeks through the summer, probably a bit into the fall as well. Invite you to be looking forward to getting to know Jesus better. Getting to know the gospel of Jesus Christ more clearly. And experiencing all the more the joy of hearing Christ call you to follow Him. So that you might believe so that you might be saved, trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Let's finish with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for making known to us Jesus Christ. Help us not to turn away in apathy or in unbelief, but rather to hear each of us personally the call of Christ to follow Him, to believe in Him, to trust in Him, and help us to be eager to come back to Your Word at least each Lord's Day. But in every day, through our own reading of of Your Word, O Lord, may we... uh, May we be eager to come back to hear more, to understand better who Jesus is and how blessed we are, how blessed we can be if we look to Him in faith and trust Him as our Savior. Bless us in this way, O God, our Savior. And we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.